Well, good morning, Tabernacle. Want to uh, first of all say great job, Buckley Campus. We hear announcements. Those of you that in Manistee that are joining us, you can't see we have a full house, even though we changed the time by 15 minutes. So, well, come on, give yourselves a little something. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Somebody said to me, uh, well, we figured out they like earlier. Outstanding. We'll have a 7 a.m. service before it's all over, right? <laughs> You're the early risers, Paul. It's not a good idea uh, to ever start a message with an apology, but I do need to start with another apology. And the, because, listen, if, if you offend in public uh, uh, as a pastor, you need to apologize in public. So here goes um, the apology. Um, to all the Lions fans, for all the cracks I've made in the last 20 years, congratulations. For a few more moments, you are number one in everything. Give it up for the Lions. Come on. Got to love our state and love them, even if you don't like them, right? But uh, yeah, number one uh, offense, number one defense, just number one right? The number until everyone else plays, but that's okay. That's okay. That's okay. And, and, and you get it right. You know, in fact, it leads into where uh, we're we're going in this new study that we're starting today in first Kings. In fact, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn there or uh, open a flat screen. We also heard you. So we'll put the words on the screen. So you're covered three ways, but um, I'm an English soccer fan as well as an American football fan. And they have a saying, it's a rather cynical saying, that if you're a Lions fan or a college football fan of any sort, you get. And their saying is this, these rabid fan bases will say about their teams, it's the hope that kills you, right? Come on, Lions, you know that. (laughs) Every year, it's like, could this be the year? You know, could this be the year? And right now it's looking good. But there's been other years. I mean, you thought Barry Sanders was the Messiah. (laughs) Greatest running back of all time. If he couldn't take you to, it's the hope that kills you, right? You thought Stafford was the one. And it's kind of a cynical saying, but, you know, it talks about that when you love something, but you never quite see it make it to fruition. It's the hope that kills you. We'll be talking a little bit about hope um, today. But we are starting a new series, and, and uh, we're, we're jumping into First Kings. And having done the study and having done the prep, I, I want to warn you so you can change churches now if you want, uh, but the tabernacle is going to be in First Kings for about mm, 47 weeks. We're the tabernacle. That's how we roll, right? So let me give you an intro to what it's about, because I've had a couple people say, is this going to be boring? I mean, <laughs> hi, pastor, it's a Saturday. Is this going to be boring? Yeah, really boring. That's what, we, well, that's what we're about, you know, 47 weeks of boredom. That'll weed out the true belief. No, we're not going to try to make it boring. This is God's word. But let me give you some introduction to First Kings, and let me give you some of the whys of First Kings in this first message, and then uh, just to get, just so you know that the hope is what kills you, we're only going to cover four verses of First Kings. <laughs> we're going to go more than four weeks or four verses at a time. But 
First Kings is an epic story, rich in history, it's rich in politics, it's rich in scheming, and there's rebellion, there's division, and it's about kings and kingdoms, right? It's all the, all the movie stuff you're watching, Game of Thrones or whatever, it's a ripoff of the Bible, although there won't be dragons and wizards, but there might be some stuff, but let's just <laughs> stick with the program. First Kings was written between 961 and 850 BC. And it picks up the story of the kingdom of Israel uh, right at the end of the reign of their greatest king, King David, or one of their greatest kings, King David. And it covers the saga of 14 kings that came after him that ruled Israel or part of Israel. Because if you've read your Bible before or taken a class on Bible history, you know we're gonna see Israel divide into two kingdoms. It's a sad story. First Kings covers Israel, listen to this, at its very height. Israel is never greater than it is in the first half of First Kings. In fact, the scholars that I've been uh, following and reading have said this, First Kings is the high point of the Old Testament. If you wanna understand the rest of the Bible, you need to understand First Kings. It comes right after First Samuel, which covers uh, the life and the rise of King Saul. Remember, Israel said to God, we want a king, even though when he brought him into the promised land, he said, I will be a king before you. And then they looked at all the other nations and said, eh, we want a king, someone that we can bow down to. And God warned them. He said, you're going to give a king, but he's going to take your sons. He's going to take your horses. He's going to take your stuff. He's going to lead you into war. He's going to tax you. Sound familiar? America, (laughs) right? But they wanted a king and they got King Saul. King Saul didn't last long because King Saul wasn't about honoring God. He was about himself. And so God rejected Saul and instead ordered the prophet Nathan to anoint a young shepherd boy by the name of David. And he told Saul, I will tear the kingdom from your hands and instead I will give it to another. And 2 Samuel is about the rise of David and how the house of Saul was put aside and instead God established David as king over Israel. And that's where 1 Kings and then 2 Kings picks up. But you might be saying, okay, why? Is this just John being a history nerd? No, although I do love history and am a history nerd. There's just three verses as we prepare for this series that I think uh, uh, that I at least need to reference so you understand the why. Because people are joining our church all the time and they'll be sitting with you and they'll be like, why are we in 1 Kings? Right, here's the first one and you've heard us reference this before. In 2 Timothy chapter three and verse 16, you'll remember what the Bible says about the Bible. It says that all scripture is God-breathed. That's why I'm forever saying there's no wasted words in scripture. If God breathed out the scripture, then there's value to it. So 1 Peter 3, 16 says, all scripture is God breathed and it is profitable or useful for teaching, training, correcting, and rebuking us in all righteousness. So when it says all scripture is God breathed, it means that all of the Bible is useful for us. Not just the New Testament, not just the fun parts, but also the Old Testament, that includes 1 Kings. But in 3.15, the verse right before that, it makes, a, 
it makes a deeper statement. And that statement, before the part about all scripture is God-breathed, it says that scripture, the sacred text, are able to make you wise for salvation. To make you wise for salvation in faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but I could use some wisdom. I don't know about you, but I could use some wisdom in faith for salvation. And so if it's God-breathed and it's useful and profitable for our good and it's able to make us wise for salvation, it's worth it to spend 47 weeks in 1 Kings. Here's the second thing. In John chapter five and verse 39, Jesus said something profound. Well, Jesus always says something profound. Everything that Jesus says is profound. If you have one of those Bibles that has red letters, all the red letters are profound. But those red letters aren't even, aren't any more profound than the rest of the letters that are in black because of what Jesus says in John 5, 39. You know what he says? He said, all of the sacred texts, right? All of the Old Testament. He says, you search through the law looking for salvation, but you don't understand is all of scripture bears witness about me. Did you catch that? When Jesus said that, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So what's he talking about? Hint. Oh, I feel like a teacher on the first day of school. Hello? Yeah, man. He's talking about the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First Kings, and Psalms and Proverbs and all the prophets. He's saying all of the Old Testament is about me. It bears witness about me. Here's the third thing. In Colossians uh, chapter two and verse 17, it says about scripture, it says that the things of old are the things of the law, right? These are a shadow of the things to come. They're a shadow of the things to come. If you ever took a literature class, you've heard of foreshadowing. Well, it's the same type of concept is we're gonna see images, we're gonna see types, we're gonna see foreshadowing happen in this story. So in 1 Kings, 1 Kings is able to make you wise for salvation. 1 Kings will bear witness about Jesus. It'll point to Jesus. And the things that we're gonna read about, including three whole chapters on a construction project, all of that stuff are a shadow of the things to come. Are you with me, church? So that's why 1 Kings, I'm glad you asked. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to 1 Kings. And I'm feeling like maybe it would be appropriate uh, right here at the kickoff to just pray one more time uh, because we can always take all the prayer we can get. Would you agree? Would you bow your heads with me here in a man of steel? Let's pray together. God, I thank you again for your word. God, I thank you that all of scripture is for us. God, I thank you that we can see you on every page. I pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear over the next weeks and months. That men and women and students, even children, would be devouring your word, maybe even reading ahead so we can get the most out of this because we live in strange days and in strange times. We need you and we need to hear from you. God, I pray that your servants who are responsible for breaking your word would get out of the way and that we would hear directly from you, that we would do nothing to detract from your gospel and your word being proclaimed. God, I ask this for the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So, 
I'm feeling good. You ready to go? It's better than kickoff, right? It's better than Thursday night. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're, we're in 1 Kings. We'll just look at four verses. And this is how the epic story uh, kicks off. This is the opening scene. It says, now King David was old and advanced in years. And although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore, his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my Lord, the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my Lord, the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag, the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king and attended to him, but the king knew her not. And so the opening scene, it's, it's definitely uh, part three in the King's Trilogy. Remember, we had 1 Samuel, uh, we had 2 Samuel, and now this is the third installment, right? And it starts as a setup for us with a very pathetic scene. It's a pathetic scene of a once great man. A pathetic scene of a once great man. And what do I mean? The picture says, or is painted for us, that you know, David was very old. You know, by estimation, we think he was about 70 years old, which for us may not seem very old. I heard one person say it wasn't so much the years as it was the miles on David. Because remember who David was. He wasn't just a great man. In my opinion, he's one of the greatest men to have ever walked the earth. I mean, Jesus was the greatest, but boy, David's got to be in top five, top three. If there's a hall of fame for men, he's right there at the top. Do you remember who David was? David, the shepherd boy, not just any shepherd boy, but the shepherd boy that overcame, right? He was the youngest son of Jesse. He was the one given the crap job of minding the sheep in the fields. But even then he showed courage and bravery. He's out there singing songs because he was musically talented. But then when the sheep were attacked by lions and bears, he fought them off. If I see a lion or a bear outside my deer stand, I'm not coming out. (laughs) But he had a job to do and he fought them off, right? He was, when he was a teenager, he went to visit his brothers when they were off at war fighting the Philistines. And when all of Israel, including King Saul, quaked in fear because the Philistines had this giant named Goliath who called them out and called curses on their head, it was David who was offended on behalf of God. I'll fight him. And remember, they brought him armor and he was like, no, this is too heavy. I'm going with rocks. And this giant with armor and and the latest and greatest in, in, in warfare tools, right? He shows up with nothing but rocks and he kills the giant. There's a great victory. He takes his head. He takes his head. As a teenager, I was happy to pass driver's training. He was a great man. He went in service to the king at an armor bear at a young age. So he goes from shepherd, you know, to hero, giant killer. He becomes a warrior fighting in service to the king. 
Not only that, but he was musically talented. He was in the band too. How can you throw for 500 yards and also be the leader of the band? David did it. David did it. He wrote the Psalms. He wrote the music, the songs that make the young girls cry. Remember that stuff? That was for all you 70s people. Yeah. He could do it all. You know, women loved him. They sang his praises in the streets so much it made Saul jealous of his own servant. And even though David knew that he would be the next king because he had been anointed, he refused to do anything to take that before it was time. He was the one that went on the lamb. He became a man on the run. Had opportunity after opportunity to kill King Saul. But he did not because it wasn't God's will and it wasn't God's plan. And it wasn't God's time. Scripture says about David that he was a man after God's own heart. It's one of the greatest men who ever lived. And after Saul and, and, and Jonathan died, God established David as king. He gave him victory on every side against all of his enemies and the nation of Israel was firmly established under his leadership. Would you agree he's a great man? He was also a man who sinned against God. A man who sinned against God. You remember that passage in 2 Samuel that it begins in in the springtime when kings go off to war, David stayed behind. And you remember his adultery with Bathsheba and then he doubled down on his sin when when he found out she was pregnant by having her husband, Uriah, killed in battle. Uriah was one of his bros. Uriah was a mighty man, one of the knights of the round table. This treachery, murder, adultery, and he got called out publicly. And you remember the man after God's own heart who was also the man who sinned against God face down begging for the life of the unborn child because God had said that part of his, the consequence was the child would die. The child died. And up from dust and ashes comes David who cleans himself up and goes to church and worships. This is a great man. He wasn't a great dad. He suffered the humiliation of a rebellion in his kingdom led by the crown prince, Prince Absalom, until he's dead. And there's all sorts of treachery. There's blood on his hands, but regardless, regardless, Regardless that he was a man who sinned against God, he was still a man after God's own heart. And this scene opens with this great man in a pathetic situation. Said he was old, he was advanced in years. He was weak, it's his deathbed. He's dying, eyesight probably failing. Strength has left the warrior's body. And he just can't get warm. It says they piled clothes on him. Another translation is blankets. And he just couldn't get warm. It's a pathetic king. Is it not? We don't know what the condition was. It's been called hypothermia, not caused by out or exposure, but by poor blood flow. It's some form of arterial 
arteriosclerosis. We don't know what it is, but I know uh, that, that, you know, I'm not talking about 70-year-olds, but my parents are a little bit older than that. When I go to their house, it is so hot. Yeah. <laughs> Old people, turn it down. <laughs> but it's worse than that. It's worse than that without the medical stuff that we have. And he couldn't get warm. And so in this pathetic scene, there comes a pathetic plan. The servants go, David, we have an idea. Let's hold a beauty contest. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. You know, David had multiple wives, even though that wasn't God's plan. He had concubines. We know that as well from 2 Samuel. And so they're thinking, let's hold a beauty contest. And let's find a beautiful young maiden to come in and to serve you, to wait on you, and also to warm your bed. And David gives us permission. So they go all throughout Israel and they find Abishag. I don't know how much say she had in it. The Bible doesn't say that's a good thing or a bad thing. It just says what happened, right? So don't get in any ideas. And it's a pathetic plan to bring this woman in to not only warm him, but maybe to make him feel younger. And it is interesting in 2023 how many men have the same pathetic plan. Just saying. No matter how young she is, you can't turn back time. And what does the scripture say? And although she came and served him, he knew her not. That means either he would not or could not. But it doesn't matter. You can speculate all you want. David is old. David is advanced in years. He's weak. He's frail. Have you ever walked through a nursing home and wonder how many of these people were war heroes? How many of these people were beauty queens? How many of these people were business tycoons? How many of these people rushed for a thousand yards in high school? How many of these people used to be in the prime of their life? This is the scene. David's one of my heroes. And it's a reminder to us as he's laying there apparently helpless and hopeless. He could not get warm. It's a reminder to all of us. Death is coming. Death is coming. Death comes for all of us. Everyone you know, death is coming. Everyone you love and you care about, from your spouse to your parent to your grandchild, death is coming. Death is relentless. It said the only thing you can count on this world is death and taxes. Death is more reliable than taxes. Death is coming. You say, I'm young. I'm virile. I'm a student. Remember when you were a student and bulletproof? Death is coming. I've buried more teenagers than I care to. You say, I'm in college. I'm in my early 20s. Remember when you were the smartest human on the planet? Death is coming. You're in your 30s and 40s. I'm just trying to make a way. I'm trying to raise my kids right. I don't have time for this. Death is coming. But I'm fit. I work hard. I do all the regimens. 
The man who invented jogging died of a heart attack while jogging. Death is coming. But what about science? Right? I read articles about science is trying to make it work so we could live forever. Death is coming. You might extend by a year or two. Death is coming. But I'm an essential oils queen. (laughs) Rub it in. Death is coming. No one, no one escapes the reaper. Genesis chapter three, after our first parents sinned, even though they were warned by God, that horrible curse with those words, for dust you are and to dust you shall return. And in the face of death, a place where all of us will walk, short of Jesus coming back, every single one of us, you will face that helpless and hopeless. You face that, you, you can't avoid it. When, when it's determined that the lights, it's time for them to go out. It doesn't matter how many giants you've killed. It doesn't matter how many women you've conquered. It doesn't matter how much money you've accumulated, how ripped your torso is with abdominal muscles, death is coming. Death is coming. And in the face of death, we're reminded that we're dust. It's a doorway that all of us walk through alone. And that's the reminder of the first four verses because I remember first and second Kings. David, my hero, helpless, hopeless, He couldn't get warm. Where's the hope? Well, it's a good time to also be reminded and to remember God's promise. I'm not saying that to hurt anyone when I say death is coming, but you know, for some of us, it might be sooner and some of us, it might be later and there's all of us in between in the face of that helplessness and hopelessness, it's time to remember God's promise. And I wonder, as David lay there on his deathbed, did he remember God's promise? Did he remember the promises that God made to him? Because if it's the hope that kills you, you gotta hang on to something. And I wonder if he remembered the promise of God. So, so if you're still with me, if you'll if you flip back to 2 Samuel, we need to go back in order to understand the rest of 1 Kings. In fact, one scholar said that the passage I'm about to read is like a table of contents for 1 Kings. And so if you go back to 2 Samuel, this is a moment in David's history right after he's established as king that God made specific promises to him through the prophet Nathan. And this is why the promises are important. We promise each other stuff all the time, never intending to fulfill those promises. But if God makes a promise, my faith in him is only as strong as my belief in him. And if God can't keep his promise, what kind of a God is he? Is he a God worth following? Is he a God worth putting my faith and trust in? And so in 2 Samuel 7, this is the promise that God made to David. Starting right around verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's quite a promise when you think about it in the context. And I just wonder, death is coming for David, but I wonder as as he was on that bed not able to get warm, not able to turn back time, I wonder if he remembered God's promise. I bet you he did. And what is the promise? (laughs) It's for this moment when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. Every single one of us, there's a time when our days will be fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers and with your mothers. But he says, remember this, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come from your own body. He's saying there's gonna be a line that will come from you, a line of kings. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, when we talk about promises and prophetic promises like this, we need to remember that there's layers to this. Yes, it's talking about where we're going for the next 10 chapters. His son, Solomon, who will become king and be established as king and he'll build a house for the name of the Lord. He's the one chosen to build the temple. It's the high point of the Old Testament. And that's what he's talking about there. And he says, I'm going to establish this kingdom and this throne forever, but Solomon's going to die. And then it says in there that when these sons, when they sin, that he will discipline them with the stripes of men. He will discipline them the way a father disciplines a son. And you're going to see, oh goodness, when we get to Ahab, how jacked up his sons and this kingdom's going to get. We've seen how our own little kingdom of 200 years has gotten, have we not? But he says, your house, your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, how is that possible? As we remember God's promise, how is that possible? Because if you've read the Bible, if you've read history, you know, yeah, there's gonna be a civil war. They're gonna divide into Israel and Judah. And about 14 kings later, maybe 20, all of a sudden the Persians, the Babylonians are gonna come in and they're gonna, care, they're gonna destroy everything and carry them all off into captivity. Where's the kingdom? Where's this promise? If death is coming, how can I trust this promise? If a promise made to King David didn't last, how is it gonna be any type of promise that I should believe in? Well, we went backwards. Let's hit forward on the VCR. Just wanted you to know death's coming because I remember VCRs, all right? Let's, Let's go forward into the bonus features or whatever it is. Past David's deathbed, centuries later. 
to a hill called Golgotha. And a man hanging on a cross. He's of the line of David through his mother and through his stepfather. He's royalty. Above his head as he hangs on the cross is a sign. You remember what it said? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. That's the promise. And he was apparently helpless and he was apparently hopeless. Blood draining out his body, beaten beyond recognition, weak, frail, short of breath, near death, and he may have been cold. Death is coming. In the same way that we see David in this pathetic scene, we see Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, in a similar pathetic scene. Helpless, hopeless, nothing his servants could do. Facing death alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the difference. God, in his sovereign and steadfast love, chose to resurrect him from the grave, defeating death and sin and Satan forever. And then he was glorified in his body, ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And his kingdom and his throne and his reign is established forever. Death is coming, but remember God's promise. That's the message of the first four verses of 1 Kings. Yes, death is coming, but there's hope if you remember God's promise. And it was true for David, and I don't know that David understood all the details about one of his sons, King Jesus, the son of God, that would be our savior. I don't know if he could see much past Solomon and his grandkids, but we're given the benefit through God's word to see that Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, is the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's the promise. And if we believe that promise for us, helplessness and hopelessness have no place for the Christian because there's a God on the throne that loves us and he's a God that keeps his promises. And whether you're young or you're old, you don't have to live in fear because if I remember God's promise, what do I remember? The greatest of all the promises that Jesus himself The king of kings uttered in John chapter three and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe upon him would not die, but would have eternal life. Do you believe that? That's a promise. Remember God's promise. In fact, we could say, remember God's promise says the one we talked about last week and just a few chapters later in John chapter six, when Jesus said, do not fear, do not worry. You know many, how many people have said to me, why are we in first Kings? Why can't we study Revelation? 
Can I tell you what? Since we're going to live through Revelation, I thought that might cover it. We'll just do first. You, you didn't think that was funny, did you? You're like, oh, is John think, is John think we're going to be left behind? Uh, calm down. Nobody knows that they are the hour, not even the son of man. Relax, people. If we live through Revelation, that's a good thing if you remember God's promises. So in John chapter 6, what did he say? Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. You know, that's a promise. Remember God's promise. When you're helpless and hopeless, what does it look like to still seek first the kingdom of God? And I say this as a person without the experience, but when you're staring cancer in the face, what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God, to believe God's promise? When you're staring death in the face, what does it look like to seek first? What does it look like to believe the promise again that God so loved the world? Because when we get old, we start looking back at all the mistakes we've made, all the time that we've wasted, and we can't go back and change it. When death is coming, remember God's promise that all that's forgiven. My sins removed as the east is from the west. And if I seek first, there's hope. So in this first installment of 1 Kings, I don't want you to leave without hope. For the Christian, there's always hope. It's been said that a man or a woman can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but four seconds without hope. We are not helpless and hopeless because there is a God who loves us. His kingdom, his rule, his throne is established forever through Jesus Christ. And any one of us can have a relationship with him by faith because of God's grace. And if that's true for David, who was a man after God's own heart, but also a man who sinned against God, that's true for us. No, the hope, it's not the hope that kills you. It's the curse of sin, but it's the hope that gives us life gives us life. Would you bow your heads with me? The bands in Manistee and in Buckley are going to lead us in one more song. And as they're coming, I I just want to encourage you. I'm not being passive aggressive. These, These closing songs are meant to be a time for you to let the spirit of God speak directly to your heart. And so don't be that guy or that girl that's like, well, I got the talking done. It's time for me to be first in line to the buffet. Get everything you can out of this worship experience. And let God do what he wants to do in your heart. And so in these moments, I would invite you, if you're not a Christian, you can become one today. You can simply ask, God, save me. Jesus, save me. If you are a Christian, is there more fear in the fact that death is coming or is there faith? If there's sin in your life, it's time to get things straight with God, to confess sin, to turn from sin. God, I thank you for your word that all of it is breathed out by you, that all of it is useful and profitable and it's able to make us wise. All of it speaks about Jesus. Help us in this study to see Jesus on every page, to see this shadow of the things to come. 
God, I thank you that we can live with hope because of Jesus. Not hope in ourselves, not hope in what we've done or who we are or what we've accomplished, but instead hope in Christ and in Christ alone. God, that's what our church desires to be about. Help us as men and women, young people, families, help us to be people of hope because we believe in the God of the promise. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.